guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of the Tap on the Race podcast. We're recording on Galentine's Day. It is Super Bowl Sunday. And Galentine's <laughs> Uh Today actually felt like a really normal day because Laura and I went to a happy hour, a Galentine's Day happy hour uh, for through an organization that she works on in Astoria. And then... We, like, had a little mini Super Bowl party with just, like, a couple of friends. But, yeah. like, to go from happy hour to, like, a little Super Bowl party, it just felt very normal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... How long are we going to say, like, normal? <laughs> like, are they normal? Are we just returning to normal life? Right. Um, we had this conversation with another friend this week. I just... For so long recently, it's been pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. Mm -hmm. And while, yes, there is still a pandemic happening, I think we know a lot more about it. So people are able to, like, resume normal activities. But it still feels weird when I'm like, let's go to a happy hour with a bunch of strangers I don't know in a bar. And, like... Two years ago, that never would have felt weird. That no, would have been, no, not even remotely. No, I, that would have been a Sunday, like, yeah. you know, like normal. So, yes, it felt normal. It did. Um, and in other exciting news, uh, one of our favorite local breweries, Talea, which if you're ever in New York, you should definitely visit. They have a, a location in Brooklyn. They're opening a second one, aren't they? Maybe. I, I felt know. I felt like I remembered seeing that. If not, sorry. But they definitely have one in Brooklyn. And they have, like, really good beers for me. For yeah. Vanessa, specifically. Yeah. We shouted them out during season three because they yes. are a female-owned craft brewery here in Brooklyn. Uh, and we've gone to their tap room. Mm-hmm. We've ordered beers at local bars. Um, there's really good beer, but they have a special collaboration. Yes. So also if you're in your, you're in New York, you will probably hear if you're a dessert person about Levain. That's how you say it, right? Yeah. Levain cookies, which are like really big, thick, delicious cookies. Yeah. Um, and they're very popular in New York. And so Talea has partnered with them to make a beer, like a cookie Beer. It's like a chocolate chip cookie stout. It's a double chocolate. It's like the double chocolate chip cookie. A double stout. chocolate chip cookie stout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, so if you've been listening to the podcast, I'm pretty new on my beer journey. I really only drink sours. Uh, so I don't, I haven't dabbled in stouts quite yet, but this one is tempting me. Well, you know, I actually think for someone new to beer, if you like sours, I think what you don't like about beer is the hoppiness. Mm-hmm. Like an IPA. Like an IPA. Yeah. And for so long, that was what I always drank. So if you ever like, you know, we were out and I was like, just try this one. You'll like it. They're all super IPA hoppy. Right. And you didn't like that. But a stout is going to be like, I mean, have you never had a Guinness? No. Really? No. Never have. Close your ears, Guinness. <laughs> Laura's cat-, cat is here. And her name is Guinness. She's rubbing her face on the microphone box. So if you hear yeah. if you hear <laughs> rubbing sounds, it's Guinness but, cat uh, being offended so, by my 
I think I think a stout. You, I think you would like a stout more than you'd like an IPA. Okay. Like I think that would be the next step. Yeah. <laughs> and that next step might be with this Talea beer. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we posted about it on our Instagram story, and they reposted our Instagram story, and we felt very honored because we love the, them and their beer so much. Yes. Uh, to be reposted by them. Because we are trying to use social media more. We are. We are posting in our stories. Uh, I feel like we need to get, get more on grid posts. Like, we really mostly yeah. still post our episodes, but we are using our stories a lot more. We've been throwing up, like, quizzes, polls, uh, questions, so... Definitely check us out on social media if you haven't already. And, yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And you can always shoot us an email, tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. And, we, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and just know that we love to hear from you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, this week we have two really great biography stories for you. Yes. We spun the wheel last week. If you're just joining us for season four and you have no idea what we're talking about, we have a wheel that Vanessa and I drew Mm -hmm. ourselves. It's beautiful. And each week we spin and it gives us a theme for our research for the next week's episode. So last week we spun biographies. Mm -hmm. We've each researched, ironically, both women. Yes. Uh... With almost no connection, though, for once. They actually have, like... That was really just, like, our random connection was that it happened to just be two women. Right. That we picked for biographies. But two really awesome women we're about to tell you about. It was, like, a flashback to season three. It was. Which was all about women. So, get ready. Enjoy. Okay, so today, for my biography... Not my biography, but the biography I'm telling. (laughs) Imagine, I was like, today we're going to tell the biography of me. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a woman named Lois Long. So, Lois was a fabulous flapper, but more importantly, she was a writer for The New Yorker during the 1920s, where she chronicled her nightly escapades of drinking, dining, and dancing at speakeasies in New York City. And she wrote under the pseudonym Lipstick. Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to start off by reading a quote from the Tenement Museum's website. It's my favorite museum in New York City, by the way. It is a great museum. Highly recommend. So they wrote, when prohibition became the law of the land, a new kind of woman was born. A woman who drank, smoked, and gasped danced with members of the opposite sex in illegal watering holes known forever as speakeasies. No one man or woman described these dens in such delicious detail as the New Yorker magazine's cabaret reviewer and resident dancer till dawn, Lipstick. I am so into this story. (laughs) Like, I am very excited about this woman. Yeah. So, Lois was born on December 15th of 1901 in Stamford, Connecticut, to Francis Bancroft and Reverend Dr. William J. Long. Always a reverend's daughter. Always. (laughs) She just had to let loose after all those years. Uh, (laughs) She attended Stamford High School and then entered Vassar College in 1918, where she studied English and French. 
So Lois graduated from Vassar in 1922 with a degree in English, and like any smart woman, she moved to New York City immediately. Yes! Just kidding, wherever you want to live is fine, but New York City's pretty awesome. Uh, And she quickly started writing as a copywriter, or working as a copywriter, for Vogue. Oh, no big deal. Yeah, yeah. First job out of college. Uh, She then became a staff writer and drama critic for Vanity Fair. Oh, easy. Yeah. Uh, And then she got her big break at the age of 23 when she was hired by Harold Ross, the co-founder of The New Yorker. Okay. Just three big magazines back to back. (laughs) Okay, Lois. Oh, man. And she was hired at The New Yorker to write a column on New York nightlife. Uh, but yeah, it's just so impressive that she, like, managed to do that. Before 23. Yeah, and as a woman in the 20s to, like, be able to get ahead so quickly. Um, I mean, she was a white woman, so I'm sure that helped, but still impressive. Uh, although, and although it is impressive, The New Yorker actually was not the magazine that we know it today. It was actually kind of struggling, um... In fact, it was losing $8,000 a week. So Harold Ross knew that he had to do something to save the magazine. Uh, and that meant kind of like giving it a little bit of a facelift. So he hired Lois. Uh, he hired cartoonists like Peter Arno and Helen Hawkinson. Ha- uh, and that was to kind of breathe new life into the magazine. Which is kind of what I think about the New Yorker now, like cartoonists and things. Yeah. And like col- and columns like and that columns. about like restaurants and, yeah. you know. So Lois was described, again, as a flapper. She was said to be high-spirited, beautiful, independent, and sexually open, which made her kind of the perfect person to review speakeasies and that kind of like underground of New York. Uh, and that was something that Ross felt that the magazine really needed. He wanted, like, people to have an insight into, like, this glamorous lifestyle that you might not normally get to experience, especially outside of New York City, where right. it's so abundant. And I want to read a quote from Brendan Gill, uh, a New Yorker contributor. He said, quote, Ross was often uncertain of what he wanted the magazine to be, or rather he was certain of what he wanted it not to be. This led to many muddles and high hopes dashed, but Ross never doubted that the ideal New Yorker writer, to say nothing of the ideal New Yorker reader, would be someone as like Lois Long as possible. In his eyes, Miss Long was the embodiment of the glamorous insider. An exceptionally intelligent, good-looking, and high-spirited girl, she graduated from Vassar in 1922 and had plunged at once once joy, joyously into the New York into a New York that seemed always at play, a city of speakeasies, nightclubs, tea dances, football weekends, and stream and steamers sailing at midnight. That was a long quote. <laughs> that was a long quote. My, my writing is also small. Um, but yeah, basically just that, like, she was what he wanted a New Yorker writer and reader to be. He wanted, like, that energy and that spirit and that joy bought to the magazine. So Lois would take on her pseudonym of lipstick 
and took over a column that at the time was called When Knights Are Bold. She took it over from a man named Charles Bakersville, uh, who readers knew as Top Hat, and I guess like to kind of keep with that secret identity of Top Hat, she took on lipstick as a woman. I'm okay. doing air quotes at Laura. Yeah. <laughs> no one can see that. Uh, <laughs> um, and this, of course, kind of helped with anonymity. Because, anonymity? Anonymity. I can never say that word. Anonymous. Anonymity. Yeah. Anonymity. Yeah. Uh, considering speakeasies were illegal, so she was writing about going to these illegal places. Uh, and after a little while of her writing under one nights are bold she decided or i guess she ends the new yorker decided to rename it tables for two uh it started under that name in september of 1925 and would run until june of 1931 uh you might recognize the column name though because 70 years later it was reintroduced to the magazine obviously the content's a little different because it's not about speakeasies and obviously it's not written by lois because it's 70 years later, so. <laughs> but they now have a column named Tables for Two? Yeah. Cute. So, again, Lois's job was to go to speakeasies, and the magazine was putting the bill of this, which seems real nice. I, can I please have a job? <laughs> 1-800-NEW-YORKER. <laughs> Are you hiring? <laughs> Please hire me to go to bars, have you pay for it, and for me to review them. Thank you. That's all I ask for in life. <laughs> um, so not only did Lois write about her observations and the patrons of the speakeasies, but she also critiqued public officials, uh, especially Manhattan District Attorney Emory R. Buckner. Uh, he was a man who constantly rated speakeasies and a man that Lois was not a fan of. Ooh. So in her very first column, she wrote, Really and truly, Mr. Buckner is not one bit funny anymore, and he is far from considerate. It is hard enough trying to keep in touch with those static restaurants that often stay in place for a year, but the idea of constantly learning the new names, new passwords, and new locations that will inevitably follow this new padlocking outburst of his is a little too much. But the annoying part of the whole rig, rig, rig morale is what seems to me on the surface of things to be the utter stupidity of the places that have been caught a second time. If patrons have never heard of flask and private stock, it is too bad about them. Very few really smart people that I know are willing to drink anything that is handed to them any, anyhow. And the hocus pocus of identification fails to flatter them anymore. If the restaurant needs the revenue, it should raise the covert charge because there are plenty of people who will pay it. So, like, she was pissed that he was raiding places. She'd have to find new passwords. And she thought it was really dumb when places got raided for a second time. Yeah. She was like, come on. Yeah. She was like, learn your lesson. Like, come keep on. it a secret. Uh, so, according to our favorite source, the people source, Wikipedia... Lois offered women a glimpse of a glamorous lifestyle where they could enjoy many of the same freedoms and vices as men. So that's what was, like, appealing to her. It was like, oh, shit, a woman's doing this? Like, this is so cool. Like, it should read about someone, do you know, like, going out and, like, the tenement 
things said, like smoking and drinking and dancing. Uh, she seemed generally like kind of a fun person. Um, so I found like a couple of stories about her in the office that seemed pretty fun. And even though Ross was like very different from her, he seemed to really enjoy working with her. Uh, but to kind of show how their personalities differed, there was one story where apparently Lu Lois, have I, have I said Louise? I feel like I've said Louise a couple of times and I'm sorry. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, apparently Lois, uh, originally had a cubicle on the opposite side of the building from her assistant, which seems dumb. I don't know why it was set up that way. I'm sure there was a reason. But they constantly kind of had to go back and forth to pass on information. And they got tired of it, so they started to roller skate back and forth to each other through the New Yorker office. Uh, and Ross, who clearly couldn't see a genius idea right in front of him, because, yeah, that's, that's a great way to get across the office, uh, got really exasperated with it and ended up giving Lois and her assistant offices right next to each other. Uh, so that he didn't have to see them roller skating through the office. And while convenient, it doesn't seem as much fun. No. <laughs> I mean, probably more effective and yes. you get more work done. But, but not, yeah. not as fun. Uh, and just a little more insight into her life and work style. Historian Joshua Zietz said this of Lois. He said, She would come into the office at four in the morning, usually inebriated still in an evening dress and having forgotten the key to her cubicle. She would normally prop herself up on a chair and try to, in stocking feet, jump over the cubicle, usually in a dress that was too immodest for Harold Ross's liking. She was in every sense of the word, both in public and private, the embodiment of the 1920s flapper. So she'd come in, in her dress, drunk, and like try to like hop over a wall into her cubicle. Just, <laughs> so that she could write about the speakeasy she had just been in. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> gotta make the money somehow. Um, but I, she just wanted to write it while it was fresh in her mind. Can't yeah. blame her. So in terms of Lois's personal life, she married cartoonist Peter Arno, who I mentioned was also one of the people that were hi was hired under um, Ross to kind of breathe life into the magazine. I don't know in what story, but we've definitely referenced him before. Really? Maybe 100%. he, like, made, did a political cartoon or something that we referenced. That, or he was, like, a part of one of the, like, brothels stories we've done. Yeah. Over the, I mean, there's almost 100 episodes, but his name is very familiar to me. Yeah. Um... Well, he was married to Lois in 1927. Uh, they did have a daughter named Patricia together, but the marriage didn't last, and four years later in 1931, Long filed for divorce. Uh, she would later remarry in 1957 to U.S. Air Force Major Harold A. Fox. Uh, no kids there, just her one daughter, Patricia. I just like the last name Fox, though. I kind of wish my last name was Fox. Okay. <laughs> I also was obsessed with, um, what's his name being called the Fox? What was his name from, um, season two? Uh, 
Season two of what? Our podcast. Oh. <laughs> um. Oh gosh, what was his name? The Fox. You don't remember? The Fox? No. Oh, well, let's cut this out. I'll look it up later. But I remember I was obsessed with his nickname. Uh, he was like one of the first guys we talked about. He was the leader of the Chicago, Chicago outfit before Capone. Um. Anyway, back to Lois. No matter what was going on in her personal life, Lois was always a girl on the town. In fact, in 1955, she gave an account of her nights in an interview with Harrison Kinney. She wrote, everyone belonged to a club in those days. Torio? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. She said, everyone belonged to a club in those days, and we were loaded down with the cards you were supposed to have, although the doorkeepers quickly come to know you. Tony Soma loved celebrities, and his back and his back room and the kitchen used to be crowded with theater people. It was where Thurber got to know Humphrey Bogart, who was still going, still getting those tennis anyone roles on Broadway before he became famous. The nightclub banquets were excellent substitutes for the psychiatrist's couch, less expensive and certainly more fun. We talked out our troubles. There wasn't much chance to sulk. There was a reckless atmosphere we responded to. We women had been emancipated, and we weren't sure what we were supposed to do with all the freedom and equal rights. So we were going to hell laughing and singing. We'd start at 21 and go to Tony's after 21 closed. Drinks were $1.25. We thought brandy was the only safe thing to drink because we were told a bootlegger couldn't fake the smell and taste of cognac. Usually we wound up in Harlem. You were thought to be good at holding your liquor in those days if you could make it to the ladies' room before throwing up. It was customary to give $2 to a cab driver if you threw up in his cab. Just two bucks. Just Here $2. You Here you go. <laughs> I mean, but I wonder with inflation what that equals out to. Yeah, I'm sure that it, w- it was substantial. To like, what it. is a dollar twenty-five in 1925? Yeah. Compared to today. Right. Like, have cocktails always been crazy expensive? We could look up the inflation calculator. It's my favorite calculator. Let's see. Do you have it? Yeah. If in 1925 you paid $1.25, calculate... It's nineteen dollars and ninety one cents. Oh, so yeah, an expensive cocktail. That's like a Manhattan cocktail. Yeah, that's so interesting because this is very similar to the price of cocktails today. Yeah. So inflation has gone up, but like. And what's two dollars? I mean, it's seventy five cents more. So two dollars thirty one. So thirty one dollars to clean up your puke in the cab. Honestly, I'd probably pay a cab driver more. If I yeah. Could. I'd probably put, like, 50 if I threw up in a cab. Yeah. I think they charge you 100 on, like, I was going to say, I almost feel like it's, like, $100 now. I don't know from experience. <laughs> but okay, Laura. <laughs> I don't think I've thrown up in a cab where I've had to pay. Yeah, no, I never have either. But I do feel like I heard somewhere that it was, like, close to 100 if not 100 But it was only $2 for Lois. (laughs) Okay. Um, So 
Lois obviously did start to get older as um, Prohibition went on, and she did also become a mother. So she started to focus a little bit more on a fashion column called On and Off the Avenue, which began in November of 1925. Uh, and for that column, she went by LL instead of lipstick. Uh, she also became the magazine's fashion editor in 1927. And uh, I pulled another quote. I have a lot of quotes in this, okay? <laughs> They're writers. Everyone I'm writing about is writers. <laughs> Uh, so I'm about, this was on Vassar's website, but it came from Ralph Ingersoll, sorry if I said the last name wrong, who wrote about Lois in his autobiography and kind of about her impact at The New Yorker. So he wrote, the departments that made her famous and did a wheel horse job of pulling The New Yorker through its first years were Tables for Two and On and Off the Avenue. For Lois Long was almost unbelievably right from the first line she ever wrote. And 30 years later, she's still unduplicatable. Unduplicatable. Oof. A lot of words I can't say for some reason. It's been a long day. It's been a long day. It's a Monday. Uh, the, the critical content of Lois's columns was always set against the times. A daring journalistic innovation. Few advertisers or readers at first believed that it was on the up and up, and as Lois went right on speaking her mind, hardly a week went by without the cancellation of some advertising as a result. Fleischman and his advertising people were frantic, but Ross stuck by his guns. He said they would come back, and they did. They had to, for Lois's audience was to become so loyal that a line in her column could sell out a counter in a big department store or make or break a new nightclub. She didn't like your nightclub. You are not making it. Nope. And while I'm quoting shit, I'm going to give you some of Lois's quotes uh, from her articles, and uh, you'll see why for a couple of them. Okay. So this is quote one. Texas Guinum, who is now... <laughs> we know Texas. <laughs> Texas Guinan, who is now carousing at the Salon Royale, has added to her show a girl who does a hooch dance with the aid of a real boa constrictor, a good eight feet long. Since Texas's place is legitimately open until 7 a.m. or later and is therefore the last stop on the nightclub world, you can imagine the effect of this on late arrivals who are a little worse for wear. Doing her hooch dance. <laughs> Wait, they're open till 7 or 8 a.m.? 7 a.m. or later, yeah. Wow. Man, you know, Texas Guinan was like episode two. Yeah. We told her story so long ago. We did. We did. But wow. she's still great. Yeah. As she later wrote again about Texas, saying, Regularly the exasperated Mr. Buckner raided Miss Texas Guinan's howling glamour den, and Kate and carted Miss Guinan and her employees off in patrol wagons. Regularly, Miss Guinan emerged to start a new club somewhere else. An opening night, there she'd be with a necklace of padlocks fastooned about her neck, saying that at least she was in a per permanent home, just signed a 19-year lease. So she was, like, mocking them with her padlock neck. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I just love her. Okay, here's another place you might recognize for a past from a past episode. So Lois wrote, 
Another thing that your most high-hat friends have recently discovered is the Cotton Club in Harlem. Mm. I cannot believe that most of them realize that they are listening to probably the greatest jazz orchestra of all time, which is Duke Ellington's. I'll fight anyone who says different. It is barbaric and rhythmic and brassy as jazz ought to be, and it is all too much for an impressionable girl. I think that was sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, so fascinating. Like It's, like, weird, though, to, like, read that she was writing about going to these places that we've researched. You right? Know? I, like, want... Okay, so I've never heard of her until this episode, and, like, she's made it to, like, the top of my people I want to have a drink list. <laughs> Like, she got to see all these, like, she was hanging out with Humphrey Bogart earlier in a quote I did. She was going to Texas Guinam's place. She was going to the Cotton Club. Like, like I want to have a drink with her. I, like, to talk, yeah. I'm sure there was stuff she couldn't write about. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. I would love to hear. <laughs> I, you know, I say this all the time. The 1920s in New York City. Mm-hmm. Man, what a time. I know. To have lived in New York City. Not like the 2020s where we've all (laughs) lived inside our homes doing nothing. And like, I say that as a history teacher where I know that it wasn't great. Like, I, these are for the upper crust. Right. Of society Mm -hmm. in New York City during the time. Because I also know the 1920s was terribly miserable for immigrants in the same exact city. Yeah. But, like, oh, man, to be a middle-class white person in New York City <laughs> during the 1920s. Yeah. I would I would go to there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like you said, just to hear these people tell stories. Like, obviously, when we talked about the Cotton Club and we talked about Texas Guinan's Club, I, like, knew people went there. But I don't know why reading about the fact that she was there and, like, just, like, casually being like, oh, this new place, the Cotton Club, like, to me just blows my mind. I'm like, oh, my God, people really did go to these places. They really were just places people hung out, like you and I going to a bar in Astoria. Right. That one day people might be like, ooh, that was a cool place. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But they will. Like, we've been to bars that people will talk about historically. Yeah. You know, we've been to some of these speakeasies that people in 50 years will talk about. It's true. Like PDT or... Attaboy. Um, Attaboy or the back room uh-huh. or... You know, so, yeah, like, that's how it happens. Yeah. I don't know. But she, I'm sure, like you said, can... Or could tell some fascinating stories. Um, This one I just kind of found fun. She said, Raids were funny sometimes. We didn't have enough sense to scare. There were a few like a movie. Cops broke the doors down. Women fainted. And waiters screamed as they threw bottled evidence out the window. And I can just, like, picture it. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, To be at a raid in the 1920s. So, though her table for two column ended in 1931, with Prohibition obviously ending a couple years after that, Lipstick did continue to appear as a correspondent from Washington, D.C., Paris, and Hollywood sometimes. Uh, And obviously, Lois herself would continue to write for The New Yorker as a columnist until 1968. 
Her work would also appear in some other formats. For instance, in 1928, she was recruited by editor and screenwriter Jean Fowler to contribute to the New York Telegraph. And in 1936, she was briefly under contract to Paramount Pictures. She also made frequent appearances on the radio beginning in the 30s and continuing to the 1940s. She did officially retire from The New Yorker uh, in 1970, and sadly, a few years later, in 1974, Lois died of lung cancer in Sarasota, New York, or sorry, in Saratoga, New York, near her daughter's home on July 29th. Uh, but she seemed like a real firecracker. Yeah. And I would love to hear her stories. Man. <laughs> her daughter probably has, like, the coolest, like, pictures and, yeah. like, copies of her writing. That's really, she sounds like a good time. Yeah, for real. Uh, so my sources were, I did use some Wikipedia because I feel like we say this every time we do a biography, but it's, like, the best place to just get those base facts, like, where they were born, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but my main source was Vassar's website. Uh, they had an, an encyclopedia article about her in their alumni section. Uh, I also used an article called Let's Get Drunk and Make Love, Lois Long, Long and the Speakeasy from the Tenement Museum's website. And that PBS documentary on Prohibition, like the Ken Burns, mm-hmm. there was um, a video about her on the website. So I watched that too. Uh, and I got some of those quotes from her, like, about Texas and the Cotton Club from there. I had to transcribe them. (laughs) I'm so shocked neither of us told her story during season three. Yeah. Our women's season. Yeah. Well, we told it now. So my story today is the biography of... America's first Native American doctor. Okay. Who also happens to be a badass woman. Okay. And there's alcohol involved. Yes, yes, of (laughs) course, of course. But, like, the first Native American doctor in the entire country was a woman. That's pretty freaking awesome. Yes. Her story is pretty awesome. Uh, So, Susan LaFleche was born in Nebraska on June 17th, 1865. Fellow Gemini. (laughs) (laughs) She was the youngest daughter in a pretty notable family um, of both Omaha native descent and French descent. Uh, Her father, whose name is Joseph Iron Eyes LaFleche, is his own controversial historical figure Uh, And I'm going to tell a little bit about his history, but not too much of it. Okay. But he was one of the seven Omaha chiefs who signed the treaties that ceded 90% of the Omaha tribe's land to the U.S. government in 1854. So basically, he was one of the leading factors that moved tribes in the Midwest onto reservations Mm. and made that deal with the American government, which ended up not being as favorable to Native Americans as they thought it would be. Uh, And so his name is controversial in lots of like Native history because he was one of the chiefs that made that land agreement. Right. 
But today's story is not about him. No. Uh, although her childhood was very much influenced by her father, Joseph. So Iron Eyes truly believed that the only way to keep Native traditions alive as America continued to grow was to learn how to cohabitate with the white man. Uh, But many disagreed with his thinking and decisions and saw his reign as the chief of the Omaha people kind of as a period of upheaval Mm. because he went against many of the Native traditions because he believed everyone needed to assimilate. Okay. Uh, So he promoted an Anglo-American style of living, including log cabins on the reservation, wearing Western-style dress, and going to Christian education schools, uh, which all of his children followed. He did build a log cabin instead of living in a teepee. They wore very traditional clothes, and all four of his daughters went to a white Christian-run school. Okay. So it was an intense indoctrination of all four of his daughters, and he was very adamant from a young age that they would learn to both speak English and their native tongue. And while I could continue to go on about him and his beliefs, because he is a fascinating, like, historical figure, I do want to focus again on his youngest daughter, Susan. So Susan grew up very fluent in English and in her native tongue. She also, at school, learned how to speak French and Oto, which... I'm not entirely sure what language that is, but it is a fourth language she learned. Okay. She learned how to quote scripture and Shakespeare, and she spent her free time learning to paint and play a piano, as well as learning the native traditions and customs. So she was very well-rounded and very much a part of the Omaha traditions, but then very much part of white traditions as well. Okay. Uh, Her sisters and her were driven by their father's warning. Do you always want to be simply called those Indians, or do you want to go to school and be somebody in the world? So that's kind of what drove her to continue growing and becoming what she does become. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's this drive, as well as an incident that she encounters as a young girl, that inspires Susan to look beyond the reservation. So in 1879, Susan leaves the Omaha Reservation to go and study at a private boarding school in New Jersey. Now, 1879 is a time period when women were not really being accepted into higher education. It was very much a time women had few rights in this country. So for her to get on a train and head east yeah. to go to a private boarding school at a fairly young age was almost unheard of. Yeah. And she... Over- and she was a Native American woman. Right. She wasn't even, like, a privileged white woman. Exactly. So she had many obstacles to overcome, and she did that. Uh, she was so good in school, she actually obtained a scholarship from this boarding school to then attend... Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute in Virginia, which was a leading trade school for African Americans and American Indians at the time. So she went on to there to graduate with a degree 
second in her class in the year 1886. And at that point, Susan could have gone back home to her reservation and brought her education and married and raised a family and mm-hmm. done what she wanted to. But I had mentioned earlier she was inspired by an incident as a young child. And that encounter happened. She was around the age of nine or ten. Uh, Susan was in a room where there was a sick and elderly woman on the reservation. And they had sent for a doctor multiple times to come and aid this elderly woman. And the doctor never showed up and just never came and helped her. And at the time on the Omaha reservation, it was always white doctors who lived off reservation. Mm -hmm. So they would have to travel onto the reservation. And many times they just never showed up. And so she watched this woman die. And she thought... Like, as the woman died, Susan remembered thinking, it was, she was only an Indian and it didn't matter. The doctor preferred hunting for prairie chickens rather than visiting poor, suffering humanity. And that's when she decided she would become a doctor and she could help her people. Yeah. So once she graduated from this institute in Virginia, she would go on to train to become a physician and with a goal of going back to the reservation and helping the people that desperately needed her help. And so she attends the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. It was one of the first medical schools ever opened for women. And in two short years, she not only graduates, she graduates top of her class, becoming the country's first American Indian doctor. Which is, I mean... Yeah. Pretty phenomenal. Yeah. As you will. I promise I'm going to get to the alcohol tie-in. No, no, no. I mean, she's fascinating as a person. Yes. So, Susan graduates as valedictorian of her class. She can now, and like, at that time, you didn't really have one specialty. You kind of trained in everything. So, she could suture your wounds, deliver your baby, and treat your tuberculosis. But, uh, as a woman here in America, she still couldn't vote. And as an Indian or Native American, she could still not even call herself a citizen in America. So as as you keep telling the story, I keep forgetting, like, exactly what time period it's in. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't even think about the fact that she, not only was she not considered a citizen, she couldn't vote. Like, there were so many things against women, and especially Native American women. So her life would have been much easier had she stayed on the East Coast, Mm -hmm. um... But that's not what she did. That was never her goal. Her goal was always to go back home to Nebraska and to be a doctor for the Native people. And that's exactly what she did. She returns to Nebraska. And not only does she become a doctor for the Omaha Reservation, she becomes the sole doctor for the Omaha Reservation for quite some years. Yeah. Uh, And she works nearly 24 hours a day. And well, I can imagine, like, she's the only doctor. That... Yeah, and she was, like, always on call, and yeah. she had a lantern that she kept lit to help guide the, the sick and elderly who were traveling, because while they did, while the reservation was significantly smaller due to her father's land dealings, uh, it was still quite large. Yeah. And so people were traveling hundreds of miles still to visit her to seek out medical care, and if... 
people weren't able to get to her due to weather or sickness, she made, I'm going to call it house calls, but people didn't necessarily live in homes at the time. They were quite often still TPs. But she often would find herself getting on a horse, bundling up and riding hours or days in snow and rain and sleet to help the people of her tribe who lived on the reservation. She never wanted someone to feel ignored and die alone because they couldn't get to her. Yeah. Again, I guess influenced by what she experienced. Right. Uh, In 1894, Susan marries a Sioux Indian named Henry Picot, and that's uh, her name in history is Susan LaFleche Picot, and she goes on to have two sons with him. They do move slightly off-reservation, but very close, uh, in Bancroft, Nebraska, where she sets up her own private practice. And once she moves off-reservation, she's now treating the Omaha tribe as well as the white people in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she definitely, like, defied expectations and norms and just... I mean, she, like, never stopped serving... The people. Right. Uh, in addition to becoming the medicine woman for the reservation, she, with all of her education and higher learning, would guide the Omaha people in a variety of ways, translating legal documents for her fellow tribe members, testifying in Washington, D.C. about the theft of Omaha Indian lands, working as a missionary in her community, and teaching Sunday school. Uh, however... Her biggest passion was her role as a public health advocate. She worked continuously to educate people about the risk of communicable diseases, such as tuberculosis and influenza, and she was a staunch advocate for the temperance movement. Oh, that's not where I saw it going, actually. (laughs) So, Susan believed that alcohol was the devil and responsible for so many of the diseases for the Omaha people mm-hmm. because prior to what the white man bringing alcohol into the reservation, they just had such a... Uh, the diseases can spread more wildly once alcohol was introduced because people were sharing drinks and not being as clean with everything. So she thought that by getting rid of alcohol on the reservation, it would slow down things like tuberculosis and influenza. And so she worked really hard to have prohibition on the Omaha reservation. Uh, She lobbied quite often for the ban on alcohol. And when that didn't work, she tried to lobby and get laws that would put um, whiskey peddlers Uh, being banned from selling their wares on the reservation. She campaigned to raise awareness of alcohol abuse, which was especially important to her because her husband, Henry, was an alcoholic. Mm. She witnessed the trauma that alcoholism brought into the community, uh, and she attributed things such as land theft, hunger, and domestic violence Because often, you know, these whiskey peddlers would, like, 
people were addicted to the alcohol and then they would, you know, sell off their goods and land and horses in exchange for like a significantly less equal amount of alcohol. Yeah. Um, and she just saw her people being taken advantage of. Right. And so she was constantly fighting against the devil's drink. Uh, for some reason, I, like what when I said like that's not what I expected. I don't know why I thought this was gonna be one of those stories where it was like alcohol related, but like the like the Lysol like story, like it was like a medical alcohol or like something. No, nope. straight nope, up temperance. temperance. <laughs> um, I know, but I I just wanted to tell her story, and she, there I mean a big part of her her story is the temperance movement and fighting for it. Even I mean, though she did so much other stuff. Look, I don't agree with Prohibition, obviously. But there were actually kind of a lot of really, like, strong, independent, badass ladies who were part of the temperance movement. Agreed. Like, if like I, we've told some of their stories, but... but I yeah. still like my drink. But I still like to have a nice cocktail. But you know what? I feel like all of these stories, and, and Susan's included... It's like they wanted they wanted people to drink responsibly and because yeah. people couldn't drink responsibly, get rid of it all. Yeah. Right? Like we're we're children. Like right. you can't have it then. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean like Which some people are, let's be real. Right. I mean and I I get it, we we feel that I mean we could equate it to certain things in modern times too, like mm-hmm. Well, if we can't handle guns, let's get rid of guns. Yeah, right. Uh, and that's not what most progressives want. They just want smarter gun laws. Right. And that's, I think, where a lot of these women came from. They're like, we tried to get smart laws. You didn't want those. So now we just don't want any liquor at all. Right. Uh, so what happens in Susan's case in the year 1905, her husband Henry dies from tuberculosis that was actually caused from his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Had he not been such an alcoholic, um, his body might have survived the tuberculosis, but he just, he couldn't. Yeah. And what happens is he leaves her 185 acres of land to her and her two sons, uh-huh. and she being a woman and a Native American, like, has to fight for this land. They won't just give it to her. So it all, like, she becomes such a big activist then for, like, land rights and ownership titles and, like, fights consistently for that. While she's still running her private practice and being a doctor. Right. Uh, so she, I mean, she just had, she was a woman of she was many, doing it all. many hats. Yeah. Uh, and this struggle, she did eventually win. It took her over two years, but she does get the land, uh, for her and her sons. And this struggle inspired her to help other Omaha tribe members who were engaged in similar struggles. And, you know, when they wanted to sell their land, ensuring that they received the correct amount of money owed to them. Uh, and she wasn't helping enough already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She seems pretty awesome. However, with all of this, uh, her crowning achievement, as she noted, and what history notes as well, is that comes in the year 1913, 
when she opens the first privately funded hospital on an American Indian reservation. Oh. So it is this, you know, state-of-the-art hospital for the time. Uh-huh. Obviously, she's no longer the sole doctor, right? Yeah. She's got a hospital and a staff working for her. And it, you know, helps hundreds of people for years. Right. Unfortunately, Susan does not get to run the hospital for very long. Uh, Two short years later, September 18th of 1915, at only the age of 50, Susan herself died of bone cancer. Uh, The hospital renamed itself after her death, the Dr. Susan LaFleche Picot Memorial Hospital, Mm -hmm. and it served patients on the Omaha Reservation for well over 30 years. That's heartbreaking, though, that, like, after all her work, she couldn't help run the hospital yes. for longer. And it still sits to this day in Nebraska and is now a National Historic Landmark, although it is no longer a hospital, it is now a museum. Okay. Um, and then as for Prohibition, like I mentioned, uh, Susan died in the year 1915. She never uh, saw yeah. Prohibition go into effect, but her legacy of advocacy helped to pave the way for the temperance movement and prohibition onto native lands, Mm -hmm. which I don't know that the U.S. government laws would have affected the native people, Um, but it did. When prohibition went into effect, it did affect the whole country, but she never got to see any of that come to fruition because she she passed away in 1915. Uh, Before women earned the right to vote, before Native Americans became citizens... Like, she never got to see any of those titles, but she was still so poignant. Uh, In 2018, on her birthday, Google actually made, like, the Google Doodle Mm -hmm. all about Susan the Flesh. And, like, people had never heard of her. Like, people still have never really heard of her. Yeah, I never heard of her before this story. And, I mean, she's the first Native American doctor in this country. Not the right. first woman Native American. She was the first Native American period period to ever become a doctor. So I'm like, how do we not know her name? Like, I, it's mind-boggling to I me. I know. I feel like we've said that a lot of times during this podcast. Like, how do we not know this person's name? And it's it's just how the way history is written. I know. By white men. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think, and it, you know... I say this just because I was doing this at work today. We were planning our, our Black History Month mm-hmm. announcements. And we have made, we being the team I work with, have made an effort that the announcements we talk about are not the same names we've heard over and over and over again. So, yes, I'm not saying Jackie Robinson doesn't deserve his place in history. Right. We know he does. But, like... So do, you you know, the Arthur Ashes of the world. Like, kids live in New York City and they don't know who Arthur Ashe is. Right. And we have a giant tennis stadium named after him. Yeah. Um, And, like, the... So, like, we're making a point to bring up some of those, like, lesser-known names Mm -hmm. just to, like, broaden their experience. And I kind of wish the whole world would do that. Yeah. Like, we should know everyone's name. We should do the same thing for Women's History Month. We should. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think we are. I think yeah. that's our plan. You could, but bring, you could bring up Susan. I should bring up Susan. But uh, I used a couple different sources for my story uh, this week. I've got 
an article written by Carson Vaughn uh, for the SmithsonianMag.com. It was called The Incredible Legacy of Susan LaFleche, the first Native American to earn a medical degree. I also used a website, Shiro's of History, uh, .wordpress.com, and it was titled Susan LaFleche Picot. And then um, I found a really great website that I got a lot of information from, and they had a video that I watched. It was called Unladylike 2020. And basically, they profiled, like, all of these really badass women in 2020. And I think it would have been a much bigger thing had coronavirus not taken over the year. Yeah. Because it seemed like quite a large campaign and website and videos for each woman. And I like, never went anywhere. It doesn't seem. But it's called unladylike2020.com. And there's lots of great stories and biographies on there. Yeah. I am also surprised that we didn't do her in season season three. I know. Like, both of our ladies seem like they would have been good season three topics. Well, it's actually funny. I came across her story by accident. I came across her father first. Uh Uh-huh. Because her father was a pretty staunch temperance believer as well. Uh Uh-huh. He kind of pushed to not have whiskey on the reservation. Yeah. But then, like, as I was researching, I was like... Susan is way cooler. <laughs> and so I, 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 like, switched and wanted to tell her story. Uh-huh. Um, but we almost heard Joseph's story. Okay. I feel like we could do a story on him, but her story seemed better. Yeah. And Sadly, I think our, our two ladies probably wouldn't be friends, but, because, uh, you know, one was temperance. And one was going to speakeasies every night. (laughs) Yeah, but they don't need to be friends to have respect for one another. That's true. That's true. I think they would respect each other. They're both very uh, progressive ladies. In in their their own own way. Yeah. All right. Well, now it is time for our bar cocktail of the week. And this week we're talking about a bar that I'm actually surprised we didn't we haven't done before because we've gone there for years um but i looked at our spreadsheet and i didn't see it because i'm a nerd and i put together a spreadsheet of every episode we've ever done which is very helpful (laughs) when we are trying to figure out if we've told the story or if we've done like a grid post about something like yeah because sometimes i'm like i know we've talked about that but it's not an episode topic yeah so that's how i feel about this i feel like we must have talked about this bar because i remember mentioning uh, that their drinks were based on different boroughs of New York. But it, it looks like we've never done them as our bar of the week. And so with that, we are going to be talking about the Liberty. Yes. Which is in Manhattan. It's not in Queens. Yes. <laughs> this is true. Uh, Vanessa and I found ourselves in Manhattan with some friends doing an escape room, which... Are the best. I'm just going to shout out escape rooms right yeah. now because... They're like my favorite thing. You to need do. to get on that train if you haven't gotten on them. But and then we went out in Manhattan, which I it's been so long mm-hmm. since we have done like a night out in the city. So it was so nice. It was. But the Liberty is a great bar in Midtown, very mm-hmm. close to um, the Empire State Building. Yes, uh, and it's. A very cute bar. Even their outdoor setup was cute. They had, like, couches and, like, really fancy chairs. Um, 
But what I remember about them from before, and I didn't see this on their menu now, but I'm sure that it's the same, is that each of the cocktails that they had were like inspired by a borough in New York City. So the reason I think they still do that is because one of the, the Queen's cocktail I always remembered was the Hey Ho, and that is still on the menu. Yes. So it is very tasty. Uh, well, <laughs> the bar itself is very, <laughs> the drinks are very tasty. Um, I'm trying to remember which one I had. You had the, the rye apple one. Yes. One of our friends got a peanut butter whiskey, bacon, chocolate bitter cocktail. Uh, I'm pulling up their menu right now. And she said it was the best cocktail she's ever had. It was pretty damn delicious. It was very delicious. I had a mule because I love a copper mug. Yes. Okay, so what she had was called the Nutty Buddy. And it was the peanut butter whiskey, chocolate bitters, and candied bacon. I had the American as apple rye, which was bullet rye, apple cider, cinnamon, sugar, lemon, and bitters. You had the ginger snap. Yes. Which was a mule, but it was with gin, apple cider, cinnamon syrup, ginger beer. And then one of our friends did have the hey-ho, which was vodka, St. Germain, lime, and spiced pomegranate. Yeah. And they're just good cocktails. A solid, fun, you know, none of the ingredients are questionable or like you're not Mm -hmm. ordering something being like, I don't know what's in this. I hope I like it. Yeah. So just good all around. And like good food too. Cocktails, great food. Pretty like standard bar food, I think, but. um, Slightly elevated. Yeah, like elevated bar food. Like I didn't just get a grilled cheese. Oh yeah, I forgot. I had the French onion grilled cheese. Yes. So it made it fancy. Yes. But, so, it is a great option if you find yourself uh, in Manhattan or, you know, on vacation looking for something that is not over-the-top touristy, but still, like, centrally located near tourist mm-hmm. things. Definitely put the Liberty on your bucket list. Yes. It says that it's a modern haven with a nod to old world glamour. Old world glamour. I don't know why I got tongue twisted. But that, like, seems like an accurate description to me because it does have those, like, Fancy couches and stuff, but it is, like, modern. They have, like, TVs and, you know, it's, yeah. like, a little sports bar-y, but fancy. Yeah. So, we enjoy the Liberty. And we've been there before. Yeah, we've been there many times. That's yeah. why I'm shocked that we had never done it. But, recommendation from us. Your Queens-based masters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we will be posting pictures of the cocktails that we drank on social media. Yes, and also pictures from our stories this week. Yes. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Atop on the Wrist. Yes, and you can email us about your favorite bar or about a story idea that you have at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. And also, it would be great if you could rate, review, and subscribe. You can do that if you have Apple Podcast or Spotify. So... And this season is almost over. Yeah. We're almost at episode 100, and then we're going to take a hiatus between season four and five. So, A, we need ideas for what to do for episode 100. Please send us an email and tell us what you want. Yes. And 
we really haven't discussed season five, so we don't know. Are we doing a long-form story? Are we picking, you know, a theme like season three where we only focused on women? Mm-hmm. Like, we we haven't talked about it, so... Yeah. If you're still here and you're still listening week after week, which we hope you are, um, tell us what you want us to do. Yeah. That would be real helpful. Yeah. <laughs> we want to hear what you guys want. You know, we want to tell stories that you guys want to hear, so. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. And with that, we will talk to you next week. Bid you adieu. Bid you adieu. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.